Morning church, how are you? All right. Hey, it's so good to see you. Uh, if I haven't, it's been a busy morning, so I feel like I haven't been able to get around like I normally would. And so if I haven't had a chance to speak with you and, and I'd, we haven't met, then uh, I hope to be able to do that uh, after the service. Uh, just to, to, to meet you and to hear from you. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here, as, as Larry just said. Uh, and as I uh, often and really always say, uh, one of the joys and privileges that, that that affords me is to be able to stand up here before you and to share God's word with you. And so uh, that's something that I do with a fair amount of frequency, but through October and November, I'm going to be doing it much, much more. So uh, we'll see in the coming weeks, if like the attendance starts to taper off, then I know uh, maybe I'm going too hard and I need to back off a little, or maybe I'm not going hard enough, I don't know. But uh, if you don't know, we are in a series on John, so I would invite you to go ahead and turn to the book of John chapter 2. We're going to get there in just a bit, but before we do, um, allow me to, uh, to talk about one of the, the benefits of, uh, of being in, in the ministry. I'm not going to brag, I'm just going to say this is, this is really one of, of the benefits of being in ministry, uh, a privilege to be able to participate in a certain event, and it might not be what you think, but it is actually uh, just being able to, to, to officiate weddings. I've officiated I don't know how many weddings now, more than I can remember, and I'm going to be honest. I was going to say, like, all of them have been a joy. They haven't all been a joy, like, for, for, for me. Some of them have been difficult. I guess, let me take that back. They've all been a joy in their own right, but there ha there's some that haven't, uh, that have come with, with definitely a certain amount of, of difficulties, if you will. That being said, I, I say sincerely, genuinely, uh, I think weddings are amazing. Uh, I love to be able to officiate weddings I love the fact that I get a front row seat to the things that so many people um, oftentimes don't get to see as much. And those are the things like nervous hands and, and shaky voices and, and little whispers back and forth between the bride and the groom. Um, and just those, those types of exchanges uh, that are so sweet to be able to, to, to witness and, and to listen to. But even better than that, I get to be just a few inches away from what I sincerely believe, as we, we see in Scripture, is uh, just this, this covenantal agreement, this very sacred bond that is taking place between two people, where two people, man and woman, only man and woman, come together to form one being. They still hold on to their individuality, their, their personality. I'm not saying we become just distinctly only one. We, we, we two become one. And man, what a beautiful picture that is of the gospel and Christ and his church. And so it's a joy to be able to, to be just a few inches away from that and to see that transaction take place. So I consider it a privilege to be involved in weddings. And weddings are meant to be uh, in spite of my joke, weddings are truly meant to be joyful, are they not? They're meant to be celebrations. This is a momentous time in the life of two individuals. It's, their life is going to change forever. And so I think I've stressed it enough to say it's a joyous thing. It's a celebration. And it was no different in the first century, right? In fact, it was probably even more so than it is today. To have a wedding celebration, a ceremony in first century Israel uh, would have been a truly momentous occasion. It would have been one of the most grand events in a person's life. 
especially amongst those who were poor and downtrodden and faced difficulty in life. It would have been really kind of one of the, the highest points of their life. Typically, a Hebrew wedding ceremony would take place late in the evening. And so they fully intended, listen, to, to celebrate, to have a, a joyous wedding and to celebrate and to have a feast, a party afterwards that would go late into the evening. And as I'm going to share with you now, that it would go on much later than just that evening. After the ceremony would take place, the bride and groom often would be taken to their home by a torch-lit parade, basically. The bride and groom, the, the newlywed bride and groom, they would, be, they would be paraded through town on really one of the, the longest but most traveled routes through town so that as they travel through town, people could wish them well and to celebrate with them um, and to congratulate them. And instead of having a honeymoon, they held an open house for a week. An entire week of just celebrating this new wedding, this, this new marriage that's just taken place. And during this week, they, the, the bride and groom would be considered like royalty. They would be seen very much as king and queen. And they would even be able to have the privilege of wearing bridal robes and, and crowns. And so try to imagine if you can, in lives that often faced a, a lot of poverty and a lot of difficulty, this was considered a supreme occasion. This was a beautiful thing. This was joyful. This was celebratory. Um, this was a moment not to be missed. So I think I've set this up well enough for you to see why it's so important for us to view weddings, marriage, this way. Right? Because we're going to see Christ and his church, but, but not only that, we also see in John chapter 2 that it's, it's at a wedding, coincidentally, where we see Jesus' very first miracle performed. Right? And just as, as a side note, we see Jesus and his mother, we're going to read it in a moment, but Jesus' mother and, all, and his, his disciples that he has up to this point, they're all invited to this wedding. They're all there. Right? So clearly someone must, in, in Jesus' uh, party, if you will, must have known these two that were being married. Whether they were a relative or a close friend, maybe it was Nathaniel. They're, the wedding's in Cana. Nathaniel, we know, is from Cana. So maybe Nathaniel knows these individuals, and he brings Jesus, the other disciples, and, and Jesus' mother along. So let's look at John chapter 2. We're going to go the first 12 verses. John chapter 2, verse 1. This is the reading of God's word. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also invited Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. 
And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you now just grateful for your word, grateful that we are able to to know the account of, of this event that took place. We're thankful for your, your word and all the truths that it holds for our lives. Help us to be a people who confess, God, that your word is ultimate. It is the supreme authority in our life. It is without error. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. So we will believe these words that we have read we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and just stir our hearts and our convictions and to teach us what these words mean. And that from there, your Spirit would help us in applying these to our lives, Lord, walking out our faith in boldness and conviction. So, Lord, speak to us today. I ask that, Lord, I could just be brought low so that you could be raised high, that you would be magnified and glorified in all that I say and do today, Lord, knowing that I'm uh, a man unworthy uh, of declaring uh, your truth, but yet, um, Father, you see fit to use me. We thank you. We praise you, God. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so according to John, right, John the Beloved, the, the, one of the disciples of Jesus who wrote this letter that we have, Jesus' public ministry starts here in chapter 2. And then it stretches all the way through to John chapter 12, ending in verse 50. And this is what is oftentimes called in the book of John, the book of signs. And the, these uh, tell the accounts, the, the different signs that Jesus performs as part of his earthly ministry. And we're going to talk about some of those. Uh, only one today, the, the water into wine in detail, but I'll touch on all of the rest just really quickly here in just a moment. But understand that these signs are done, as we've already read, to reveal Christ's glory. And as we look at this, this first sign at the wedding of Cana, I want us to go back to John 1.19. You don't have to turn there, but we see from John 1.19, we can walk all the way through to our, the end of our passage today. It shows us really this, this week that takes place, right? And it may seem pretty insignificant. We've probably read this passage many times and we've missed it. I know for the longest time, I certainly did. We miss something that's, that's underneath all that we just read on the pages that's taking place. We see this first week of, of Jesus' earthly ministry, seven days. And it ends with a very public sign declaring who he is. So stay with me, because I want to walk through this week really, uh, really quickly. You can glance back to the scriptures if, if, if you like, but I'm going to give them to you. So we have what I believe to be the very first day of this week of his 
entering into his purpose as the Messiah takes place when the Jews sent, if you remember in, in John chapter 1 verses 19 and following, the Jews send priests and Levites to John the Baptist to ask him who he was. Are you the Messiah, they ask him, right? Different John, not John, the author of this letter that we're, we're reading, but John the Baptist. Ask him, are you the one to whom we, which we are, or we're waiting for, the Messiah, the prophet? John says, no, it isn't me. Another, I'm, I'm merely the one who comes to make way for that man. So that's day one. Day two is given to us, and John uh, starts each of these sections with saying, and the next day, Right? depending on the, the, the version of scripture that you have. But day two is given to us when John the Baptist declares Jesus as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. All right, that's in verse 20, chapter 1, verse 29. And then we have a third day. If you haven't picked up on it yet, you'll see we're going to have a lot of third day repetition statements all throughout the book of John. It's going to be hearkening back to much of what takes place in the Old Testament. But on the third day it is when Jesus is joined by his first disciples, Andrew, and another disciple who isn't named, but is probably most likely John, the author of this letter. And they followed, it says, Jesus, and they stayed with him for the rest of the day because at this point it was already the 10th hour. That's 4 p.m. Right, so it's late enough in the day now. The day is coming to an end. The next day is going to begin. And so they stay with him. That's the end of day three. So then we have Jesus' introduction to Andrew. Or excuse me, Andrew's introduction of Peter to Jesus. Which is on the next day. That's the fourth day. And then there's the encounter with Nathaniel, which happens on the fifth day. All right, and then we're, we're given a, a phrase that says, that an event takes place on the third day, which I know sounds kind of crazy, but stay with me. It's, it's two days after that. So you have the day that you're on, and then on the third day. So the next day, day one, you're on day one. Day two, day three. It's two days after, right? Does that make sense? It sounds, I, it just, it sounds uh, a little bit hard to follow, but, but you're, you're going to see the significance of this in just a moment. In the passage that we're in today, we see the wedding at Cana. It takes place on the third day third day after. And this would, would place the wedding, um, many biblical scholars believe, on the seventh day. And this gives us a full week. And that seventh day, that full week, ends with a crescendo, with uh, Jesus performing a miracle. So why does it all matter? Why, why does it matter that we see seven days taking place here and Jesus performing a miracle at the end? It seems to me, at least, that John is drawing from the first creation story. He's drawing from the Old Testament, from Genesis, the account of creation, to put a special emphasis on the fact that a new creation has come. A new covenant has come. A new way has come. And you're going to see that more and more as we go along. And we can't know this for sure, but I would assume if John's readers are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, I think they probably were, then, then they would see this and make the connection. And I'll talk, as I said, more about this later. But before we get to that, the signs that Jesus performs. You know, at, at, at times I've heard individuals say that 
Well, Jesus performs these miracles just to, to, to prove who he is or to show his authority. And I think those are certainly true. Those are absolutely true. But I think it's important for us to, to be more specific, more intentional with our words there, to say that these, these miracles, these signs that Jesus performs, they show his identity as the Messiah. Right? This is the one that they've waited for. And now all of a sudden he's here. And he's saying things that no one has said before. No one has said them quite in the way that he has said before. He says it with such authority and such truth. And he validates these truth statements that he makes with these signs that he performs that no one else can do. So he's showing his identity as the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. So it validates his identity, but it also, and, and his truth claims, but it also brings unbelievers to faith, does it not? How many different accounts do we have throughout the Gospels just in Christ, his ministry alone, how many people come to faith in him as Messiah through the actions of his miracles? John specifies that after this, this miracle, that Jesus' disciples believed in him. Right? The statement that, that this was the first of his signs indicates that Jesus had never done any miracles before. And so despite what you might have heard from other uh, writings outside of the New Testament, the apocryphal books uh, that said, you know, Jesus as, as a child uh, took clay pigeons and he turned them into real live pigeons. Um, we don't see that anywhere in scripture. So we don't see any miraculous signs done by Christ up until this point, which indicates he didn't do any miracles through his childhood and, and early manhood, but he just lived in ordinary, as an ordinary man with his divine identity hidden within him. So you can see why this moment is, is so important. And you're going to see, if you don't know already, why it's so important that it happens at a wedding. And each of the signs that John gives, as I said, I won't cover all of them in detail. There is an emphasis on the way in which the sign reveals Jesus' messianic character the fact that he is the messiah and he does this by doing something really exceptional and and accomplishes um it, you know a, a great quality i guess let's I'll, i would say it this way um something uh great in quantity turning it into something great in in quality I'll, and i'll explain so we see Jesus heals the official's son, right? And so what's, what's the great quantity? Over a long distance, a, a long geographical distance, Jesus heals this man's son. How? Just by speaking the words. And then we have the invalid at the pool recovers from a 38-year-long disability just by Jesus speaking a word. Large quantities of food produced for a massive crowd of followers that were with Jesus. A man's recovery from lifelong blindness. So you see, large quantity and high quality the man was blind his entire life. Then Now he has sight. How much quality is found in that? 
And then lastly, the raising of Lazarus after being dead and in the tomb for four days. He raises him from the dead just by speaking a word. So these miracles show, I hope you understand, the glory of Jesus as the sovereign creator and rule of the known world. But he's also a merciful God who provides abundantly for his people, which we're about to see. So coming back to the text, we have a problem. There's a problem that has arisen. Do you know what it is? They're out of wine. As I said before, a wedding celebration in the first century uh, in Israel, it could last an entire week. And the cost of a celebration would fall entirely on the, the groom. And in the Jewish wedding feast, wine was essential. It was required. It was an absolute necessity. But it wasn't so that the guests could drink in excess. It was because, as I've, I've said, uh, it, it's, it is a symbol of joy and celebration. Wine had to be present because it was a sign of celebration and joy and abundance, which is everything this wedding uh, brings and symbolizes. It was such of great importance for the wedding feast that to run out of supplies, wine, or anything else literally could have left the groom open to a lawsuit from the family of the bride. Right, so you, you, can you feel the weight, the importance of this occasion? That wouldn't be a really good way to, to start a marriage off, by the way. Right, you, you want to you get in good with the in-laws. In this story, we see Mary come to Jesus, and she tells the problem. They have no wine. As I said, it's a problem for the groom, yes, but I think as John probably intended, there, there is a spiritual picture of a, of a person's life without Christ. Right? If, if, if we are people without Christ, then ultimately understand something, church. We don't have any real, true, lasting joy. We can have pleasures, we can have happiness, we can have enjoyment of things, but there's no really true, deep, and lasting joy apart from Christ. And so I think that we, we see this in the, uh, the absence or, or running out of wine. All throughout the scriptures, wine is used as a symbol for joy. Psalm chapter 104, verse 15 says, Wine gladdens the heart of man. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, it says, Come, you probably know this one, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So there is a very significant image in the wine, but it also is, in fact, actual fermented wine. The master of the feast makes this clear when he states that at this point of the party, everybody's already had too much to drink. And then comes out the good wine, the new wine. The Greek word used here for uh, where the, the, the master of the party says that everyone's already drunk freely. That, that phrase, drunk freely, in the Greek is um, a word, methosko, which literally means to intoxicate. So I'll add really quickly, please hear me, I am not at all saying that Jesus is promoting drunkenness or that he is contributing to further drunkenness. 
It just simply means that people have already had enough to feel the effects of wine. But wine in the ancient world was oftentimes, as you may know, diluted with water. It doesn't mean that it wasn't alcoholic. It just means that it was weaker than what we would typically experience today. It's less strong. We believe this is true because undiluted wine was referred to as strong drink in this culture. And it was oftentimes seen in a very disapproving manner. So clearly Jesus has much more in mind than just doing something really nice for the bride and the groom by providing more wine. But before we get to this, I want to point out some things that that we might have missed in this story. What about Mary? Mary, the mother of Jesus, she turns to Jesus and she tells him that the wine has run out. Now, we don't hear anything more about Joseph, the father of of Jesus. Uh, after Jesus at age 12 was left at the temple. We don't hear anything else about Joseph, so I think it's safe for us to assume that Joseph has died. He, he has passed away, and he has left the responsibility of head of household to Jesus. We know that Jesus was known as the carpenter. He wasn't known as the carpenter's son. So Mary has probably had to lean on her eldest son to lead, protect, and provide for the family. It was his role, his responsibility. So naturally, she goes to him with this problem that's, a, that's come up in this wedding. And Jesus responds to his mother with a quite polite, but not at all endearing term that wouldn't have been typically used from son to mother. He refers to her in uh, the Greek, a word that is genei which the closest rendering today would be like referring to a woman as ma'am. He calls his mother ma'am. But he also asks her, what does this have to do with us? This is a common Jewish saying that was meant to create distance between two parties. It would have been as if Jesus was saying, what do you and I have in common regarding this matter? So it sounds like it's got a little bit more sting to it when when we hear it that way. And rightfully so. I think, hear me church, this is a rebuke from Jesus to Mary, his mother. It's a gentle rebuke, but it's still a rebuke. And you might not like what I'm about to say, especially uh, you, you mamas out there, but here's why I think that. This is the moment in this story where Jesus is beginning his ministry as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And he is so far above every person that he is never, ever in need of advice or counsel or suggestions, even from the woman who gave birth to him. So we see a very significant shift in the life of Jesus at this point. He has now entered into the purpose of his coming. He didn't come to be Mary's son. He didn't come to be a carpenter. He came to be our savior and to do what no one else could do. 
That means that every person, everything, every relationship must be subordinate to his mission. Don't we see that even in the exchange with Peter? When Peter says, and Christ is talking about going to the cross, and Peter, he he denies it and defies it. And and what does Jesus say to him? He says, to a friend, to a, a fellow friend in the ministry, get behind me, Satan. Everything, every person, every relationship is subordinate to his mission. So here's what that means. Mary must no longer have the privileges or obligations that come with motherhood in relation to Jesus. And I can imagine quite easily that this must have been a very difficult thing for Mary. However, all people, including Mary, must come to Jesus in the same way as the Messiah. It's like the saying that we have that the the ground is level at the cross. Right? No one is more advantaged than another or disadvantaged to, than another. We all come the same way to, to, to Jesus. We all approach the cross in the same position. And Mary must do the same. Because this is Jesus, the Messiah, the incarnation of God the Father. God in the flesh. So we see our problem. Let's see our solution. I believe, church, that that Jesus brings abundant and overflowing joy to life, as I've stated already. And I believe that that the best of that joy will come at the end, right? We're, We're still waiting for the fullness of that joy, are we not? We can walk in the 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 joyfulness of the Lord now. But, but when we enter into the state of glory with our Savior, our joy will be overflowing. The best of that joy will come at the end, much like the wine comes later in the wedding party. Are you starting to see? John didn't include... The details about the days that that I started with, I think, for for no reason at all. He also didn't just randomly select an event that took place at a wedding as as the start of Jesus' ministry. As I've alluded to already, there's a lot, church, at play in this passage of Scripture. And I think this event specifically is included because of how the third day and the wedding signify a fulfillment, as I said, the third day patterns in the Old Testament, and not only that, but also the new covenant wedding undertones, the new covenant, the, 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 the wedding um, that, that we are waiting for, the, the, the messianic banquet that, that we are to be a part of. John is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. He has come as the second Adam. We know the story in Genesis. Adam, the first Adam, he sinned. He broke covenant with God. In essence, God never lost control. So so hear that in light of this statement. But but Adam really, he kind of ruined everything. He ruined the world. God wasn't surprised by this, but the first Adam who came broke covenant. 
create a distance between man and God. But Jesus comes as the second Adam to undo all of those things that were done in the garden in Genesis 3. He's bringing forth a new covenant, a covenant of grace. But know this, in doing so, Jesus isn't just declaring that he is a better Adam than the first. I don't want you to miss this, church. Jesus isn't saying that he's a better Adam. Jesus is saying that he's the perfect Adam. He will perfectly carry out and fulfill all that was intended for Adam to do in the garden. All of the ways that Adam failed and sinned and broke covenant with God, Jesus will not because he is the perfect Adam. He will perform perfectly all of the mission that has been given to him. And he is the only one who can do this. Because he is the messianic bridegroom. So connect that to the bridegroom in the story who's responsible for providing everything for the wedding party. He's responsible for providing the wine. Jesus is the messianic bridegroom. He supplies all the wine that is needed for the banquet. And John says, having done this, the first of his signs, that Jesus has manifested his glory. So it's important for us to understand that the focus here is on Jesus' glory, who he is declaring to be. This calls back to the claim that we see in chapter 1, verse 14, where the disciples say, we have, or it says, we have seen his glory. And so this miracle in, in Cana depicts the same thing, that Jesus comes and he gives grace upon grace. He provides abundantly to the point of need. So let's go back. To John chapter 2, verse 6. John 2, 6 through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So quickly, I'll I'll go through this. Jesus calls on these servants to fill these six stone water jars. These water jars were used for the Old Testament or the the, the Old Covenant purification rites. The people would use these jars filled with water to symbolically wash and literally wash, but symbolically wash and cleanse themselves of sin so that they could be in right standing before the Lord. So their original purpose, I think, church, I hope you don't miss it, tells us a great deal about the meaning of this story. Because the water in the jars of the old covenant, it represents the old Jewish laws and customs. Which Jesus is about to replace. And he's going to replace them with something much better, is he not? 
These six jars, which it says held 20 to 30 gallons each, were filled to the brim, to the top. Imagine, if you will, you couldn't have fit, you couldn't have put another drop of water in these jars. They're completely full. This tells us that what Jesus is about to do is is significant. He tells the servants to draw water out and to take it to the master of the feast. And until that moment, understand, water had always been drawn from these jars for ceremonial washing. But now they draw from them wine. The best wine. Remember that they were filled to capacity. They were filled to the top. So do do you see the significance that Jesus is saying this old system, this old covenant, this old way of doing things to have right standing before the Lord, I'm going to do away with them. It's filled all the way to the top. You can't put any more in it. I'm going to do the absolute most that can be done. I'm going to fulfill it all the way in full perfection, the perfect Adam. You can't possibly do more than I'm about to do. That's what Jesus is saying. He takes these jars, which represent the old covenant with water, and he he turns the water to wine, something better, something joyous, something that, that symbolizes abundance and life, and it's filled all the way to the top. So that means, I guess practically, church, that, that Jesus doesn't just save you only a little bit. He saves you all the way. He's provided the full amount to where no more could have been provided. The time for ceremonial purification is done. It's been fulfilled in Christ. It's been replaced with something new, with something better. And hear me again, this is a picture of the messianic banquet that we will all, as the bride of Christ, get to take part in one day. The Christ is enough. He's fulfilled it all. On the cross, he said, it is finished. This is what it means. It means there needs to be no more sacrifice. There needs to be no more ceremonial washing. It's done. This sign is also a fulfillment of a a rather interesting passage in Genesis chapter 49. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to share it with you. But if you want to jot it down, Genesis 49, 11 and 12 It talks about in this passage how the vine will be so bountiful, so fruitful that the coming king of Judah, which is Jesus, will tie his donkey's colt to the vine and allow it to eat freely. Now that sounds strange, but here's what it means. You can tie your donkey's colt to the vine and let it eat freely and not have to worry about there not being any grapes left. It's so abundant. It's so bountiful. You don't have to worry. There's going to be plenty, more than enough left over. It says that there will also be so much wine that the king of Judah will use it to wash his clothing. Now that sounds really strange because we wouldn't do that, right? It would stain your clothes. It'd make them sticky. Eventually they would start to stink. It doesn't mean literally wash your clothes in wine again. Do you see? It just means there's so much wine, you could wash your clothes in it and not worry. There's still plenty left over. So do you see the abundance? It 
Here's where I think um, we apply it to our lives. Here's what it all means. Jesus came as one from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 14. This first sign that he performed showed us his glory, his might, his majesty. And this glory wasn't visible for everyone who saw the miracle performed. Understand, there were people who saw the miracle performed, but they didn't know what it meant. The disciples could see it that day. They were given the ability to see the deeper meaning, the glory of the triune God present in Jesus, who was abounding in love for foolish, weak, sinful people like us. And out of Jesus' abundance, the wedding guests received grace upon grace as we do. If you are here today and you have Christ as your Savior, you have grace upon grace. You have an abundance of grace. You have more than enough grace than you could ever possibly need for all of eternity. At the wedding party, they drank the very best wine made by the one who created the grapes himself. Remember John 1, 1 through 3? In the beginning, Christ was there. All things that were made were made by him. But more than that, the wine that they drank freely was a foretaste of eternity, the gospel, the new covenant. So, church, let me ask you, and, and I don't want you to miss this part. Are you able to see his glory? And I don't just mean like you hear and, and, and just kind of mentally you, you see and you know. That isn't, that isn't belief. That isn't devotion. <clears throat> Do you see the glory of Christ in the things that he's done? Do you believe in him, that he is the one and only Savior of all mankind, and that he has performed all that needs to be done in order to rescue us from our sins? Is he your Savior? And if he isn't, then, man, I plead with you this morning. Surrender all to him. Because listen to me, and these are hard words, and I don't say them to offend. It's just the truth, and I have an obligation to the word of God to, to proclaim this truth to anyone who is not in Christ. You are an enemy of God, and you are destined for hell. The wrath of God will be poured out on all of those who are not in Christ So just know that God is real. Christ is real. Heaven and hell, they are real. And I'm not trying to just scare you into responding so that you can get out of hell free. 
I want you to know the Savior and the joy that he brings and how he will radically in the best way possible change your life. And you can walk in the fullness of joy of knowing the Lord. I'm sure there are countless people in this room, in this church, who could attest to the fact that there have been moments in their lives where there has been a joy that has been present that they couldn't explain to you why it's there other than the fact that, that the Lord provides it. Church, understand, apart from Christ, we have no hope. No hope at all. So this is me pleading with you if, if, if you do not have Christ as your Savior, because we're about to take communion here in, in just a moment, and you're going to see much of what we have read really kind of play out in its significance. I want you to respond. I want you to come to know the Savior. Or if you feel like you have just kind of lackadaisically walked through your faith um, and you need a, a renewed um, devotion or fervency for the Lord, then respond. Let the Spirit do a work in, in you. So I'm... I'm going to pray, and then here in just a moment, I'm going to say a few words about communion. And, and Church, I just want you to take the time to sit where you are. We're going to have, um, I believe Isaac's going to come and play here in just a moment. Just sit in your seats and pray, respond, think deeply about these things, uh, about who Christ is and what he has done and the importance of what we're about to do. As we draw near to the, the Lord's table, table to celebrate communion, understand that, that we're, we're partaking um, symbolically of, of the body and, and blood of Christ. And that Christ instituted this. He says in, in Luke 22, as he explains um, in a meal with his disciples, explaining the bread and the wine, he says at the end, do this in remembrance of me. Do this for me. Do this and think of me. Do this often and remember me. Remember what I've done. So don't let this be just some small thing that we do at the end of the service. Think deeply on these things. Thank the Lord for his grace that he has lavished upon you. Pray fervently for those friends and loved ones that you have who do not know the Lord, that God would, would convict them and break them and bring them to a place of surrendering. So remember Jesus is dying for our sakes. But remember also that we have union with him as one body. What a beautiful picture. And also remember the blessed assurance of Jesus' presence with us as we take it. And I would say, as we always do quickly, not to shame or embarrass anyone, but if you're here this morning and you do not have Christ as your Savior, then please respectfully just don't partake. This is a very serious and special and sacred thing that we do as the body of Christ. So if you can't boldly and confidently declare Christ as your Savior, then please just, just remain seated where you are and don't come and, and take part. We're not going to point you out. We're not going to embarrass you. Um, we just This is uh, something that we do as the family and body of Christ. Also know that these elements, the bread and the, and the juice, they're just, they're symbols. They represent the body. 
There's nothing special or magical in them. We just do these things in remembrance of who Jesus is and what he has done in sacrificing his body and spilling his blood for us. So church, let me pray. And then whenever you're ready, just come forward. You can grab the elements. You can come back to your seat. You can pray with those around you, with your family or friends. You can explain to your children what these elements symbolize and why they're important. Just take your time with that, and then, um, and then we'll close the, the, the gathering out with uh, worshiping the Lord in song. Let me pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much, God, for, for who you are. We thank you for this story, the account of Jesus' miracle performed at the wedding of Cana and all that it, it means, all that it teaches us. Oh, Lord, how you have come in Christ to provide us with abundant joy and life, life everlasting. That Christ came to do what no other man could do, to lay his life down as a sacrifice for sinners so that we could come into fellowship with our creator and have life. Lord, we know that at one point in our life, we are all sinners apart from you. We are incapable of saving ourselves, Lord, but in your abundant grace and love for us, you came down in the life of of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to accomplish it all. We confess that today in faith, in boldness. Help us to walk in that every day of our lives, Lord. Father, as we just come and take part of communion now, I just pray that our hearts and our minds would be stirred, our attention would be fixed on Jesus in thinking of all of that he has accomplished for us. As we take of the the bread and the juice and just thinking of the the body and the blood of Christ that was torn open and, and spilled out, we just give you thanks. Father, I know that that sounds so bizarre to those who don't know you, and it seems grotesque, but we thank you for what we know it declares that the ultimate sacrifice was made once and for all on account of our sin so that we might walk in newness of life and the grace that you provide, Lord. We worship you now because of it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.